This morning, I want to begin with a reading from 2 Timothy. So if you would get a Bible and find your way to 2 Timothy. The new year has begun. Uh, Last Lord's Day, I offered you the first uh, sermon for the new year that I entitled All Things New. It is really popular in kind of pop culture, big Eva churches for pastors to get up on the first Sunday or Sundays of the new year and they do what's called vision casting. And they get up and they give you their, their sort of visions for the new year or for their church that they're preaching to or whatever, uh, which always breaks my heart because the, the job of the shepherd in the local church isn't to give you his vision, but it is to draw you to the vision of Christ in the word. It's to teach the word, to proclaim the word, to point you to him. And, 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 and it's in which case this sort of vision casting stuff is just uh, a shaking my head kind of a moment. But what we did last week was we jumped into the ministry of the word and, and we looked at the theme of new things in scripture. Since it's a new year, it was the first Sunday of the year, we just looked at the theme of new things. We talked about God's creation of the world and discussed new life. We looked at the reality of sin when God's creation turned against God and talked about that new reality of the fall. We talked about our need for new birth last week and saw what Jesus had to say in John 3. We saw Titus 3, 5 and 1 Peter 1, the necessity of new birth, for we are all born fallen. We are not sinners because we sin. We actually sin because we are sinners. We are born in a state of sin. We need new birth. So we saw new life God creates, new realities, creation is fallen, new birth God graciously saves from among the sinners in this new reality. We saw new battles that come in the creation with regard to forces of evil. We saw the new covenant that comes in in Christ in the story of redemption. We, We studied the reality of new creation, how God is saving from the fallen creation and making a new creation. We saw the promise of new bodies in the resurrection. And the last point of last week's message was the new earth when God restores all things. I recap those points because unfortunately, due to technical difficulties last week, the sermon was not recorded. And I think it's important at the new year for us all to have these new things in mind with this uh, theme of new things in scripture and just looking at really basic realities that are important to know with regard to new things. And this week I wanna continue kind of building on this with a new year and new things, we need to go back to some basics. We have the new year before us, and I want to focus our hearts and our minds on the divine mission that has been given to us by the Savior, by our Lord in this age, for this city, for the cities of the world, for the entire creation. God is at work doing something, and with new years, it's often important to go back to basics, to look at the basics and think about, okay, I need to be reminded of simple things. So I've asked you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Uh, Would you find your way to the first chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1? This is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. It is an ancient letter that was penned by him to leaders in the churches to remind them of basic things. This is what we ought to be doing all year long, so it's good to remind us of these things at the beginning of the year. Paul writes to leaders of the church. He addresses it specifically to the historic figure, Timothy, and he calls the church into joyful and active mission. And that's where I want to go today. I want to call us to joyful and active mission. This uh, pandemic and the politics uh, before and around, swirling around the pandemic has been a difficult season. And so it's important to remind ourselves, look, what are the basics? What, What should we be focusing on? 
indeed, any and every Sunday in which you come here, we're going to remind you of the basics and point you to the gospel and give you something to ground you for, for the week. And we come back and we're reminded once again of the gospel. But let's be reminded of, of the work of the gospel and the mission that God has given us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, draw your eyes at verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius, Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy in the house of Onesphorus, for he has refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. The title of my message this morning is Mission Creep and Making Catechumen. Mission Creep and Making Catechumen. Uh, the definition of, of mission creep, if you were looking it up inside of a dictionary, it means the gradual broadening of the original objectives of a mission or an organization. The gradual broadening of the original objectives of a mission or an organization. Here in, in Timothy, here in 2 Timothy, Paul calls them to the original objectives of the mission that was given to them by Jesus. He tells them, retain those sound words. Walk in faith, walk in love. Remember the objective. He tells them in verse 14 to guard what has been entrusted to them. The Greek word that is, is used there, philoso, is a word that means to protect from loss, to, to keep from damage. Keep it in its condition. Keep it in its pristine condition. Don't let it get damaged. Don't let it get used for something that it wasn't intended. In modern terms, we might use this phrase, mission creep. It, what it was originally intended for, it has crept off its course, and now it's being used for something other than that. To draw your eyes at verse 15, he speaks to those who have turned away. You are aware of the fact of those who have turned away from me. There are people who had left, people who weren't on mission anymore. They are discouraged. They've, they've, they've lost some steam, you might say. They've lost some numbers. They're, they're discouraged. And what, you know, what do we do? He, he says, hey, look, you keep going. You keep with the original mission. Keep your eyes on the prize. Stay focused on the northward star and just keep going. Paul didn't say that they left because these people had fallen into heresy. He didn't say that they left because they had walked away from the faith. Uh, we, the text doesn't tell us if it was a matter of heresy, but he makes reference to the ministry in Asia, which indicates that or implies that it was likely not heresy, but hardship. Ministry in Asia was rough. The mission required sacrifice. And so people left because they didn't want to sacrifice for that place and for the spread of the gospel there. People left because they could find other messages that were more appealing to what they wanted to hear. Paul warned in others of his writings that the time would come when people would want to have their ears tickled and they would go after teachers who would tell them what they want to hear. Mission requires sacrifice. Mission requires discomfort. We are living, as last week's message reminded us, for a world that is yet to come, for resurrection of the body, for new heavens, for new earth. And what we do in this life in terms of our sacrifices will pay dividends in the life that is to come. Christ is worthy of the sacrifice today. He will be worthy of the sacrifices that we make for purposes of mission 
on and on and on to the break of dawn. It's everlasting what we're doing right now. We see creep has come into the church. We, we see that there are people who have veered off and, and walked away, Paul is talking about. We see this throughout the history of the church. Uh, when you study from the time of Jesus, the apostles, the disciples of the apostles, all the way up from the first century to the 21st century, there's always going to be the temptation of creep. And it's a subtle temptation. It's a subtle temptation. It's a lot like, you know, uh, uh, adding weight. You don't, just, you don't just wake up the next morning 50 pounds too heavy. It's, it's a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. It's just little bites, little bites that start to add up and start to add up. And next thing you know, those genes don't fit anymore. Uh, I'm working my own COVID stuff out, <laughs> up here, right? It, it's just, it's the little things that come and next thing you know, hey, wait a second. This is what happens with Mission Creek. An organization has started to do one thing and they're doing it and then someone goes, hey, what do we, why don't we do this? And they start doing that and, and slowly, you know, it's just a little bit right here, but as, as time passes, you start going, wow, we're, we're far from what we originally set out doing. An example of this would be the YMCA. Uh, founded by uh, a Christian gentleman, Sir George Williams, uh, and, and a handful of his believing friends. It was founded in the 1840s. The YMCA was founded as an evangelistic fellowship for, for the church that focused on men's ministry. Uh, they held le lectures at Exeter Hall in London. They published literature. They began doing sports outreach, and they were doing this because they were worried about men in the culture who had become boyish, Peter Panish, who had become addicted, who are being destroyed by secular forces. So they wanted to combat alcohol addiction, destructive gambling, prostitution, uh, human trafficking, other social evils. And they started the YMCA for purposes of evangelizing men and strengthening men for local churches. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the YMCA today, I don't think of anything like that. Uh, you know, YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. It's not, it's not a Christian, so drop the C. It's not men. When you go to a YMC, there's ladies there too. No, no problem with that. No, you know, not knocking it. Just saying what it originally was tended to do, they crept off mission. In fact, today, most people, if they belong to a gym, to a YMCA, no one says YMCA. What do they say? I'm going to the Y. <laughs> you know, and it's not even the Y. There's old people there too. Like, what, why do, you know, you have you've literally lost what, you're, what the acronym is there for. Like, you're not that anymore. So how does that happen? Well, it, it happens with this phenomenon of mission creep, and it happens when uh, an organization has its, its mission, right, that's given from, from top down. Here's the mission. Here's what we're doing. And when they fail to train up the next generation for that, it slowly starts to steer off course. This brings you, you to the next phrase in the title of today's me message, mission creep and making catechumen. That's a word that maybe you're not familiar with, so let me show you a definary dictionary, a a, a dictionary <laughs> definition. Uh, a convert to Christianity who's receiving basic training and doctrine. That's what a, a catechumen is. A catechumen is one who is uh, receiving instruction in the basic doctrines of the faith before admission into membership in a local body, like a church. So this is kind of the spoiler alert. What I'm doing today is I just want to remind us of our mission. And I want to remind us of the importance of raising up catechumens, uh, of raising up the next generation. And that's not to say younger folks, because there's older folks who come in who are the next generation too, and they need to be trained. 
And so the catechumen, it's just just another word of using the term disciple. It's a little more technical, and I wanted to use that to grab your attention. And you know I'm all about wordplay, so that MC, MC, I just had to do it, mission creep, and making catechumen. Now, I want to take you from Timothy into Matthew. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, which if you're not familiar with your Bible means you're going to be turning to the left, to the left, to the left, and find your way into the Gospel of Matthew. Now, while you turn to Matthew, let me draw your attention to the first point on the outline. That is the attrition of creation. Before we get into the Gospel of Matthew, I want to take you, as you see in the parentheses there, to the very beginning of the story of the Bible. As you jump into Matthew, if you just jumped into Matthew, you'd be kind of coming into the movie late. You're you're watching the new Spider-Man universe thing, and you haven't seen the Tobey Maguire one and that other guy one, and you're like, I don't know what's happening right now. So before we jump into Matthew, let's begin with the beginning. That's always important. The Bible begins with God creating. Uh, Science begins that way. Uh, we, We know from the Big Bang or the cosmological singularity that there was a moment when time and space comes into existence. We know from science that everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. This is how the Bible begins, rather scientifically. In the beginning, God creates. God creates a world, he pours his love into the world. The God who creates is uh, an amazing being of love who in himself has love for he is Father, Son, and Spirit. He not only has love, but he is love, the Bible tells us. This triune, loving, holy God makes the world. And he didn't make the world because he was lacking. He's perfect. So it's not like he was bored or he was, he, he was lonely. He needed company. He has Father, Son, and Spirit in himself. He doesn't lack company. He makes the world as, a, as an act of grace, as an act of love. This was the first point of, of last week's message, the point of new, new life. He brought life into existence, and he blesses that life. And that life rebels against him. And so the punishment of rebelling against the one who gives you life is for life to be taken back. The the punishment for rebelling against the one who's the architect of order is that now disorder comes into the creation. So we have death and we have disorder. Along with it, we have dysfunction. Along with death, we have disease. And so you think of those four Ds and think of what has happened in the creation. We're all impacted by that. Dysfunction cuts through us. Disorder cuts through us. Disease and eventually death will come to us all. Ten out of ten people die because ten out of ten people sin. We're a part of this beginning story in that we're a part of the creation that rebelled against the one who was given life. But behold, the one who gave life is gracious and merciful. And so he, he implements this incredible plan. And back before the foundations of the world, he does this. He, he chooses to save from fallen creation. And he does this through offering promises to the creation and specific figures in the creation, such as Abram, who he says he will make him into a nation. And they become the people of Israel, and God promises to use them as a priesthood to the whole creation. Now, priests are mediators between uh, fueling parties, and so a priesthood then would operate between the fueling party of the creator and creation. And that's what the historic people of Israel do. They're mediators between God and man. The problem with their mediation, however, is that they fall short. The very law that God gives to them, they fall short. And so they can't stand as a perfect mediator between God and man because they're soiled themselves. They're, they're guilty themselves. It's like corrupt judges who are doling out sentences on criminals. You say the whole system is rigged and corrupt. What sort of justice is this? And so what God does is he promises to send one who would be the perfect mediator through them. This is what we celebrated at Advent and Christmas, the coming of the Christ child. 
who is the seed of Abram. He's a Jewish man. He's a part of that, that mediation that God promised to the earth. But more than being a man of history, he is God of eternity. Recall that I said God's Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sends the Son who becomes this historical figure, Jesus, in the flesh, fully God and fully man. As, as man, he lives a life of innocence, so he can serve as a perfect mediator. He's not a corrupt judge. He's, he's not a judge who can be bribed. He's, he's innocent and he's pure. But further, as God, he has the prerogative to forgive, so he's the ultimate mediator. And what he does as the ultimate mediator is mind-blowing. He sacrifices himself for his people. He gives his innocent and righteous life for his people. And, and so as he steps into history, he comes to tell them in advance of what he's going to do. I'm here to set you free from the wages of sin and death. I'm here to pay that penalty. Ten out of ten people die. But guess what? When I die, I'll rise up. I'll rise up. I'll conquer the grave. I'll do that for you. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins. Follow me. I will give you new life. This brings you to the next point on the outline, the aim of Christ. So we see the attrition of creation, the disease, the death, the disorder, the dysfunction. And now Christ comes into this story, and he has come to seek and to save the lost. Further, to pay for the lost, to atone for them, to give his innocent life in exchange for their guilt and their shame. Even further, he has come not just to be a sacrifice, but he has come to raise up a catechumen. He has come to train people. He has come to give this mission and launch this organization that we call the church. He offered his kingdom to the people of Israel. His kingdom was rejected. Meanwhile, he's building this organization, this, this body called the church that he would send out into the world with this mission to go and proclaim that the king has come, to go and proclaim that the king is coming again, to go and proclaim that the king is merciful and forgiving and loving and, and, and kind, and not just to proclaim him, but to, but to make pupils of him, those who will study him and follow after him, a catechumen, those who will learn and pursue him. I ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Would you draw your eyes at the fourth chapter in the 18th verse? Now, as Jesus was walking by the sea, this is as Jesus gets going in his public ministry. He's about to start. He's about to get this mission cracking. As Jesus was walking by the sea in Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we read in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. I said earlier that mission requires sacrifice. These nets are how they make their livelihoods. This would be like a mechanic walking away from his garage. To, to leave your nets is to lose your livelihood. They were, they were willing to sacrifice that. And they were willing to sacrifice that not because there was anything innate or righteous within themselves. It was the power of the word. Jesus commanded them to follow. Just as God created the world by the power of his word, as he comes and he commands them to follow, they immediately let go. They were forever changed by the power of the word. Just as God spoke uh, and creation was brought into existence, Jesus spoke, speaks and new creation comes. Follow me, follow me, and they come. And the invitation to follow was not just for following's sake. He was saving them. It was for Christ's sake. He was becoming their savior. And further, it wasn't just for saving, it was about training them. I'm going to teach you how to become fishers of men. I'm not just saving you so you can be saved and have a ticket to heaven and go on about your life and do whatever you want to do with your life and live for yourself. No, I'm saving you and enlisting you into this mission of fishing for men. I'm teaching you how to live. 
I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to be right with God. I'm showing you what is good and what is beautiful and what is blessed. What is the will of God? What is the, the power to live in this fallen world? That's what he's teaching them. On the heels of chapter 4, if you turn the page and you look at chapter 5, you see that wonderful, wonderful sermon on the mount. You see that wonderful section of, of the Beatitudes from chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. You see his teaching of disciples in the world from 13 through 20. He starts talking about personal relationships and caring for the rich and the poor and, and, and living your life now for what is to come. Jesus is, is showing them how to live. He is making them disciples. The work of redemption and discipleship was Jesus' aim. He came not just to save, but to teach men and women how to live life so that they could duplicate that as a part of his mission. We have a calling to teach people how to live life. In John uh, chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus, the eternal Son, talking to the eternal Father, the one God, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You see that there in verse 4? What was the work that he had given him to do? It, this is before the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm done. I completed the mission. You say, but isn't the mission dying on the cross and raising from the dead? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's mission two. But there's an aspect of the mission at this point before the cross that he had completed. And what was that work that he had completed? He had raised up a catechumen. He had, he had made disciples. He, he had discipled them. Continuing in this passage, let me put it in front of you so that you can stay in Matthew. John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And, and now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I give unto them, and they received them. They truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. And I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those who you have given me, for they are yours, and all the things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. Jesus is anticipating the cross, a brutal death, suffering, the glorious resurrection, his, his ascension into the heavens thereafter. His, his heart is though focused in this moment on his disciples and on the work of discipling them, of making them this catechumen. This, he says, is complete. I've, I've done it. The, the ones you gave to me, I, I did, and I've given them your word, and I've showed them this way of life, and they're not in the world anymore. I've, I've taken them out. I've shown them a new way. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said that disciples, and I quote Jesus here, who have been fully trained will be like their teacher. Jesus had made the catechumen like him. He was training them to be like him. If you had turned in your Bible to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6, now turn to Matthew chapter 27. This whole account from the first century, from the historic Matthew, is an account of, of how Jesus was training, training and raising up and giving this mission that we are a part of today. So it's important that we constantly come back to it, lest mission creep set in. Follow him. Be a disciple. It's all over these gospel accounts. Uh, ch chapter 27, verse 57. We read here, look at this. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. I, I, want, I want you to see the word disciple. It's an important one. Because often in our culture, we'll talk about believers. Uh, Christ didn't come to make believers, people who believe in him, and go on living their lives doing whatever they want to do. He came to make disciples. 
And the word disciple connotes much more devotion, much more allegiance. It's much more sacrifice than just, oh yeah, I believe that. You know, I, I totally, I totally think that. I think that, I totally think that's true. I totally think that. No, no, I'm not, I'm not calling people to think stuff about me. I'm calling them to be in relationship with me and to be changed by me. In the ancient world, that concept of discipleship was understood. I think in our world it's understood too. We just don't use that term disciple anymore, and so it gets lost. But if you hear the word apprentice, and you think about an apprentice, I got an apprenticeship. I got an internship. You go, oh, you know, and a lot of them aren't paid, right? It requires sacrifice, and you've got to show up early, and you've got to follow around someone who teaches you a skill set that you don't possess. And you follow around someone who introduces you in relationships and, and networks you, and it involves sacrifice, and it involves hard work. That's much more than just a mere believer, being an apprentice, being a follower, being, being a, a, a part of this, of this thing that he's building. It's hard work. It requires changing your life around. And so I meet many who will say, oh, yeah, I believe that. You know, I believe in Jesus. We see it at all the award show, all the award shows in Hollywood and music industry. You know, I'd like to thank my Lord Jesus and Savior for this album. Beep, 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 beep. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're living the Christian life, aren't you? Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, let me put it in front of you. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's not telling you to go hate your parents. The law of God tells us that we have to honor our parents or to abandon your children or anything like this. He used to say, if you have, if you have relationships that take priority over him, that's not okay if you want to be his disciple. He comes first. He's primary. He's everything. The, the, the language, that nomenclature and imagery of carrying your cross, that's, that's what happens when you go to die, when, when the state, when Rome puts you to death. Following after him means being willing to let go of your whole life. You can't be discipled if, you, if you're holding on to things. You, you can't get in shape if you're not willing to let go of your diet or to do the work that it requires. You can't become a boxer if you don't want to box. You can go once a week and listen to someone talk about boxing and you'll never know how to box. You can go once a week and watch a boxing match and you'll never learn how to box. So too, you can come once a week to church and hear someone talking about Jesus and you're never going to become like Jesus if that's all you're doing. You want to learn Pilates? You want to learn how to play tennis? You want to learn how to play the piano? You can't go once a week and listen to someone talking about playing piano and start playing the piano. You likewise cannot be a disciple of him if you just come in here and it goes in one ear and it goes out the other. Or you just treat it casually. You won't grow in that regard. That's not the mission that Christ came. Now the mission that Christ came to give, we see in the next point on the outline, was passed to the apostolic community. Hopefully you still have Matthew in front of you. I'm going to take you into the 28th chapter in what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus gives this commission. This is the original purpose statement of the organization of the church. Uh, we, we, we saw in John 17, which happened before the cross, where he says, hey, I raised them up. I completed this work. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to atone for them. He's going to rise up from the dead and, and come back to them. That's where we are right here in Matthew 28. And he's going he's gonna to commission them. Matthew chapter 28, draw your eyes at verse 18. 
Jesus came and he spoke to them and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. You see the command there, make disciples. Two words, make disciples. In the original Greek, it's one word. Let me put it in front of you. Mathe tu sate. It's one word, which is a verbal form of the noun mathetes, which is a word for disciple. If we wanted to keep it as one word, mathe tu sate, we could translate it as disciple. Uh, but you'd get the red underline in a word document. But disciplize. Scholars note that this, this mathe tueo means not only to learn, but it, it, it becomes attached to the relationship that a learner has with the teacher, that a student has with the rabbi, that, that uh, the intern has with, with, with the person that they're under, you see. This, there's, it's relational, it's life, it's living, it's pursuing, it's sacrificing to make disciples. And they're not just doing this in one setting, they are to be migratory, they're to be spreading out. Go therefore and do this. And they're spreading out for specific purposes, not for uh, comfort, but for mission. They're spreading out in creation to go to the places that have never heard of him. Go to all the nations. The word that he uses there is, uh, is a term, uh, ethne, which makes us think of ethnicities and people groups. He wants to see them go, this ragtag group of these Jewish guys in this small corner of the earth in Jerusalem, to go from Jerusalem and spread out these Jewish guys and reach all the ethnic groups of the world. And here we are today. You, you, you know, when you think of Christianity, Christianity historically spread into Africa, Asia, well before it spread into Europe. It spread uh, over into the Americas. It's, it's around the world. That said, there are still ethnic and people groups that have yet to be reached. And so our mission that was given to us some 2,000 years ago is yet to be fulfilled. We still have work to do. This brings me to the next point on the outline, the apostles' charge. In the writings of the apostles, we see them charging the disciples and churches with the Great Commission, saying, we have a mission. We've got to do this. We've got to fulfill this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, let me put it in front of you. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. What I was trained in, I'm passing down to you. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reiterates that he was teaching and preaching to them what he had received. He speaks in verses 1 through 3 of what he had received, they received, which is the language of discipleship, of training. He goes on to cite an ancient creed of the church concerning the work of Christ. This shows that they were teaching doctrine and they were memorizing things and, and passing down, yes, beliefs about God, but also behavior about how we live our life in God. They were sharing life and doctrine as a part of making disciples. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaks of doctrine that they were discipled in and warns them about bad doctrine, like bad ideas that people have about, about God. You know, uh, People say stuff about God all the time, and there's lots of fake news that floats around about God. And he warns them, hey, be careful of that stuff. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You can't just go once a week and, and hear a guy talking about it. You have to practice this. You've got to practice this. You've got to take this. You've got you to go, okay, I want to practice this in my life. That's discipleship. They're learning, they're receiving, they're putting into practice. To be clear, it wasn't the apostles who were making them put it into practice, though. It is the power of God's word. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what, for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Notice it's the word that's performing the work. If I didn't have verses like this in the Bible, I, I wouldn't have made it 20 plus years as a pastor. I would have given up a long time ago. Because if, if it's on me to be clever, or on me to formulate things, or on me to inspire you, I would be hopeless. It's the power of the word. Which is why in this sermon already, you're just getting Bible verse, Bible verse, open your Bible. Because I, I believe the power is here. So as I point you to this, it's going to perform a work in those who believe. That's the, that's the power. Many of you know this power. You've picked up this book, and it's messed with your life. And you've read stuff, and you've closed it, and thought, I'm not ready for that. And it, it bears a seed in you, and it grows, and your life starts to change. You, you get convicted by it. You, you get comforted by it, too. It's not all poking you in the eyeball, but it, it comforts you, too. You're going through a hard time, and you read the Word, or you come and you hear the Word preach, and you find comfort in that. And that, that comfort keeps you from making bad decisions, or hurting people, or believing things that aren't true. You find comfort. You, you, you find confrontation in the Word. And, and it starts to do this work. Many of you know this. And some of you, maybe you're going, I don't know if I know this. It's available to you. Hear the word. Come to him. Confess your sin. Be changed by him. Let his work perform that work in you. The same word that brought the universe into existence. The same word that made men walk away from their livelihoods when they dropped those nets. That same word is going out today and it is effective. It is powerful. It is life-changing. See the power of this word. See how the people received the word. Receiving, that's discipleship. It's hard to nearly impossible to, to disciple someone lest God do the work. It, you can't disciple someone otherwise. We need God to do the work because left to our own devices, we're going to go, I don't, I don't want to do this. This is hard. I don't want to do this. You know, this is gonna, you know, my friends are going to think I'm weird doing this Jesus thing or whatever. That just requires to, you know, I'm not that committed. I, what do you mean? You know, left to our own devices, that's where we would be. But the power of the word changes things. If, if, you, if you're not willing to learn, if you're not willing to receive, then it just falls on deaf ears. If you're unteachable, it falls on deaf ears. The disciples have to be teachable. They have to have ready hearts. They have to be eager to hear. The apostles speak again and again about this receiving. Let me put 1 Thessalonians 4 in front of you. Uh, finally then, brethren, we read in verse 1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, you excel still more. You see the receiving of instruction. You see the response in their walk, which is a metaphor for obedience. I'm teaching you stuff, and it starts coming up in your life, and we can see the fruit of it. In the next chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul speaks about instruction and disciple makers who diligently labor among them. They labor to train the people. They, they labor to point the people to be catechumen who are devoted to learning and being a part of the community. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul urges his readers to stand in the word received and instruct others in the truth. Lots of Bible verses flying at you. All of them are on your outlines in the parentheses. If you go, oh, I didn't catch that one. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul twice commands his readers to instruct others. That's discipleship. We're instructing, we're helping, we're teaching. Uh, this happens in sports. It, you come on a team and 
you have a coach who's showing you how to do things, and you have players who might pull another player aside and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Hey, I'll stay after practice. Hey, I'll help you. The Christian life is just like that. You're part of a team. We have a coach we listen to. Uh, uh, your pastors are just players on the team who are pointing you to the coach, pointing you to his manual, teaching you the plays that he has set out for your success and more so for his glory. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells the church to preach the Bible, to instruct disciples. He warns them about those who won't listen to sound doctrine. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, we see Paul's passion versus discipleship. He speaks of the believers at Colossae who were built and established through instruction. You were instructed. You see that? If your Bible is, is still open to Matthew, turn now to the Gospel of Luke, which means you'll be turning to the right if you're new in the Bible. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke. We have four Gospel accounts. Luke actually is a, is, is, is a two-part account because Luke and Acts are part of the same story. They have the same author. I'll show you that in just a moment. But let's go to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. These Gospel accounts, they're not only just giving us the history of Christ and doctrine of, of who He is, what to believe about Him, but they're also discipleship manuals that are offering us a way of life and, and how to live, which means it's really important to familiarize yourself with the Gospels. If you've never read them, that should be a New Year's resolution for you. Just start in Matthew 1 and just go all the way through and plow through them. They should be read regularly. This is a part of our discipleship. Look at how Luke begins his account. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in a consecutive order. Look at verse 4. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. You see, the concern of these accounts is to pass on truth to those who have been taught it. It's not, this isn't the sort of thing that once you learn it, you, 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 you go on. You know, I've done my ABCs, I'm on, to the, I'm on to the next. No, no, you need to constantly be reminded and hearing of the gospel and hearing who God is and hearing of his, of his call in your life. It always boils down to the basics. This is so true in athletic illustrations and parallels to this. You always have to come back to the basics. And we come back to the basics because, again, there's mission creep that sets in. Let's, let's move now from this point on your outline about the apostolic community uh, and, and the apostles' charge now to the Acts community. I told you that Luke is a part of a, of a two-volume account, and the second volume is Acts. So if you move from Luke past the Gospel of John into the book of Acts, Luke-Acts would originally have been read as one document. We have them split in our current format of the Bible so that you have the four Gospel accounts together. So this is part two in the saga. Acts chapter 1, I want you to see how it parallels Luke chapter 1. The first account I composed, Acts 1-1, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He addressed Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, here again, he's addressing Theophilus. Uh, about all that, I'm, I'm, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 1. Verse 2, until the day that he was taken up to heaven, when he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Those orders is, is the point. The apostles have been charged, they've been given orders, and their orders were to build up a community of disciples, which the book of Acts records for us. This is the Acts community. As the book continues, we see the Lord ascend, we see the Holy Spirit come, we see the churches born, we see they go in this mission. Draw your eyes at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There we read what the community looked like 
and Luke describes them. He says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. As the book continues, we see the disciples making disciples. We, we see lives and homes being transformed. We see, we see that they have taken this mission. What Christ did with his men, his catechumen who became the apostles, what the apostles were doing with them, we see it, it, it's following after. There's no mission creep. They're doing the same thing. They're devoted. They're sacrificing. They're spending their time together. This isn't something they, they click off once a week to go and hear a message like, like is done across this country in North America. This is a regular thing. It's a way of life. They're in homes. They're, they're, they're transforming households. I think of Acts chapter 16, verse 15, and, and, and Acts 16, 31 through 34, where you see whole households coming to know the Lord and being discipled. Throughout Acts, you see this devotion. This is what they live for. They didn't live for hobbies. They didn't live for, uh, you know, political parties. They didn't live for these other agendas that keep Christians occupied in our culture. They live for making disciples. That was their bread, their butter, their blood. Draw your eyes, uh, move from uh, chapter 2 up to chapter 18 quickly. I want to just highlight some things about the Acts community here for us to see, for us to be challenged by. In Acts chapter 18, verse 11, here we're reading of Paul's ministry. We read in verse 11 about how he settled there for a year and six months. What does it say? Teaching the word of God among them. So they're migrating as the book continues, but they're going to places that haven't heard. And they'd set up and they say, I'm going to spend a year and six months here for purposes of training up some disciples who then can go and also make disciples. Together, together, they're teaching. Together, they're, they're also, you know, teaching isn't just taught, it's also caught. As you're hanging out with someone, you pick up things from them. It's one thing to go to a parenting seminar and say, I want to be a better parent. It's another thing to find someone who's a good parent and spend time with them in their home with their kids and watch them. It's one thing to say, I'm going to read a book about how to, you know, be a good husband or whatever. And that's important. Those books are really helpful. But it's another thing to get around someone who's been married for some time and spend time with, with, with them together with their spouse and see how they treat one another. See how when something wrong happens, how they react. That's caught. You catch it by being a part of the community. There's taught and caught in discipleship. You, you have to be together for it. And so Paul commits to staying in places. He's not just there to drop Bible verses on them. He's there to live life with them. In our church, the ways in which we do this are various, but the key ones that we always emphasize are participation, obviously, on Lord's Day, that you're here, that you sacrifice to be here on Sundays, and it's a joyful sacrifice because you love hearing God's Word and singing with the saints and being together. Sundays are important to us. We also have what we call community groups, which are groups that meet inside people's homes. Uh, and in community groups, uh, every week on the, on the outline, we always have little questions on the back of the outline where you get together and you talk about the Word together. What does this look like in my life? How am I doing with, with this? How do I apply this? Application is best done in community. So we have Sundays, and then we have these small groups. And then we also have study groups, like our Bible Institute, which is rolling out on Wednesdays. I'm going to do a 14-week course on Bible interpretation. It's a little more college format. So you get the more classroom format. You get the living room format. You get the corporate worship on Sunday. We, we also are always trying to give you books and stuff for you to read on, on your own and resources for you to grow. So you have your solo time with God where you're reading the Word and you're 
you're, you're using resources, sermons and whatnot to grow. You have your Sundays where you're together. You have small groups where you're talking and saying, how am I doing? I'm discouraged. I'm confused. Or, you know, I'm going through this and that. And you're helping each other. You're discipling together. And finally, we have the Bible Institute. That's our, our way of doing this. Look at Acts 18, back at the text. Verse 23, we read of Paul, having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through Galatia, the region of Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. In verse 24, there was a Jewish man, Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. You go on to read, there's not time about Priscilla and Aquila who, who help instruct him even more and he's discipled more. That was the ethos of the church. People come in and you go, hey, how are you doing? Hey, do you know who God is? Hey, what do you think about God? What do you think about life? What do you think about this? And you're, you're teaching one another and you're growing in one another and you become a, a, a literal family. In Acts 20, Paul describes in verse 31, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears, end quote. They gave their lives for this. And this wasn't just the apostles. This is for the church. That's the next point on your outline, the apprentice's calling. This is for the regular, it's not, oh, you're a pastor, you do that, or, you know, these apostles, they did that. No, this is for all of us to do. Uh, in fact, you think about, and you have these verses here on your outline, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. They're all about the gifts of the Spirit that have been blessed to the church for the edification of the church. We've all been called to this. That means when you're not here or you're not participating, we're actually losing out on something because God is forming these communities, pouring out gifts by His Spirit for purposes of making us more and more and more like our Master. We're all apprentices. In the New Testament letters, what we call the epistles, you read all about this. Some of the letters are addressed to believers' homes. The letters include names of people and, and greetings. Like These aren't abstract concepts. I mean, even Luke and Acts, you see, it's addressed to, a, you know, a guy. And, and you go, oh, wow, like these are real people in real life, living real faith. And this wasn't a new thing. Jesus didn't come and, hey, discipleship. That goes back to the story of Israel, the promise that was made to Abram, uh, the, the, the prophet Moses, speaking of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Look at this passage. Israel was told, hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. These words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. We're, we've been saved from this fallen world. We've been saved from that, that dysfunction, that disorder. We've been saved from that. And now he's adding to our disorder, harmony, as he's giving us a way of life. He's, he's given us the promise of everlasting life. He's remedied death itself, but, but that's future. He's teaching us life now in the present. This has been going on ever since God has had a covenant people. You see this here with Deuteronomy. See the emphasis on discipleship in the home. Talk to them. Recite it to them. Repeat it to them. That, that's what you do. That's what you do with a catechumen, you keep repeating the same things over and over. If you have small children, you know that's true not just with spiritual things, but other things. Hey, lift the toilet seat up. Hey, did you brush your teeth? Hey, who left that there? Hey, put your plate away. You know, uh, who did that? No, nobody. I'm really curious to meet nobody one of these days, right? You're constantly saying the same things over and over and over. 
In fact, we've been saying, my wife and I, that we could get our kids like tri or quadrilingual if we just, all the things that we're constantly repeating to them, you know, we just do it in other languages, they'll become fluent. And because you're just always repeating the same thing over and over. And that's how memory works. You hear the same thing over and over. Our kids need to hear this. We need to hear this. There's a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. You need to hear that all the time. God saves you, not on the basis of works which you do in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You need to hear that all the time. You need to hear about the apostles and Jesus and all these. You need to keep hearing this. Hear, O Israel. It begins, this is traditionally known as the Shema, which is the opening call in the original language. Shema Israel. The Shema is to, to hear, to listen. Let me get your ear for a moment. And let me tell you about who God is. Let me tell you about his love. Let me tell you about the way of love that he calls us into. And let's respond in worship of him. Look at verse 8 that's in front of you. You shall bind this as a sign on your hand. It shall be on the frontals of your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The people were not only to just recite and to repeat and to call people to hear his law and his love, but also to attach it to their hands and their homes. There's the practice of mezuzah. Uh, where, where you, you, you take writings of scripture and you place them inside of small boxes and you affix them to, to doors in Jewish culture. It comes back to this, a real literal reading of this. There's also the practice of tefillim or phylacteries where these little leather pouch, pouches, you put little scriptures in them and they wrap them around their arms and around their foreheads for times of worship and prayer where they just really literally do this. Uh, metaphorically, it's to get it in your head, to get it in your heart, to get it in your hands, to get it into your home. This, from Israel, goes all the way to the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul calls the church to walk in holiness. In Ephesians 5, he starts talking about homes and marriages and parenting. In Colossians 3, it's the same thing. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3, the home and marriage. The home was a discipleship hub. This is why it's huge to do community groups in homes, and it's it's huge to spend time together as believers in homes. You learn so much about the Lord and how he's working and how he's shaping his people in the home. It's, a, it's kind of a, a litmus test. Not kind of. It, it's a, it is a litmus test inside of scripture for leadership. Leaders in the church. It, it has to be modeled in their home before they can stand in front of the church and call others to it. In the Bible, we see that the families were used by God to, to spread this message and grab a hold of people's lives. You have a reference there to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I'm mindful of the sincere faith which was in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice. And I'm sure that all is well in you. Timothy learned about the Lord through his mama and his grandmama. Uh, scholars note that traditionally, in Jewish culture, boys were instructed in Torah by their fathers. Their spirituality, that was an obligation of the father. We read in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, that Timothy's father, however, was a Greek... Uh, he wasn't a God-fearer by indication of, of the book of Acts and the history that we have. So his father wasn't a believer, but his mother and his grandmother served as examples, and, they, and, they, and they, they were there for him. I think of my own grandmothers when I was a wayward teenager, and they'd send me Bible stuff and pray for me and remind me of who the Lord was, and, and that planted seeds in my life that the Lord is continuing to water to this day. Men are supposed to teach their sons, to be clear, in 1 Corinthians 14.35, Paul also says that men are supposed to be teaching their spouses. They're supposed to lead their homes in this mission of catechumen. I think of how hard it was in Israel's day uh, to do that. Uh, they're, they're occupied land and enemies trying to kill them. And, you know, it's before the printing press. I think about today all the resources that we have. 
all, all the tools that I have, all the apps, all the things that I have to help me to have devotion with my wife and my kids and the rest versus how hard it was for Israel. But with the technology that they had, put it on your doorposts, put it on your hands, put it on your heads. When you're out walking, you know, make sure that you're talking about this stuff. You know, when you're in the car, talk about this stuff with your kids. In highlighting the spread of families and homes, I need to emphasize the spread of the gospel and discipleship through single people. The Apostle Paul, who we've been reading, is likely single. Our Lord Jesus was, of course, single. Uh, there are single people used in the book of Acts. The point of highlighting families and singles is just to show us and remind us of the apprentice's calling that is for all of us. This isn't for married folk or, or pastors or super Christians or whatever. It's for all of us. It's for kids to, to reach out to their friends who are kids and tell them about Jesus and singles and marrieds and widows. It's for all of us. And one of the methods that has proven the test of time is the next point on your outline, the act of catechism. Catechumen, catechism, you hear the similarity there? The word catechism comes from a Greek word, katecheo. Let me put it in front of you so you can write it down. The University of Chicago Press lexicon indicates that katecheo means to share a communication that one receives, report and form, to teach, to instruct. Beyond teaching and instruction, the word is used for a particular kind of oral teaching or verbal instruction, where you pass on things uh, in discipleship, where a teacher passes it on to a student, and what they do in this technique of catechism is you memorize it. And so you ask a question, and, and that question would, been, would then be repeated. And you know that they've understood it when they can repeat from memory the proper answer. It's a kind of Q&A format. Now, Jesus does this kind of Q&A format in his teaching of the disciples. He's, he's, he's offering them questions, and you see them responding. We see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, where he says in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. In Galatians 6, 6, he says, let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. In Acts 18, 25, Apollos has been instructed in the way of the Lord we saw. All of those verses I just referenced use the word katecheo. Katecheo is a, a term, catechism, comes straight from the Bible. Ancient Christians wrote catechisms. We have the Apostles' Creed, which... Uh, maybe if you had a private school education, maybe you were exposed to the Apostles' Creed and you'd memorize it and be asked questions about it. In fact, one of our earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament is a text called the Didache. And, and the Didache, the longer title, is the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. Teaching is Didache. It, it is written in the same language of the New Testament, and it, it's a discipleship manual from the, from the first century. And it's given to catechumens, and they would learn, and they would grow in their faith, and they'd be asked to memorize sections of it. One scholar notes that Athanasius describes it as appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us, who wish for instruction in the word of goodness, end quote. So this is something we do in our church, like we have a formal membership, and we have a 10-week class, and we teach a bunch of stuff, and people come, and they, they learn it. It's a, a part of belonging in the community. This is what we believe. We share these beliefs. We share this way of life. Catechism is more formal in that you would learn and you would repeat and you would, you would pass on. This goes from the days of ancient Israel with the Shema all the way through the history of the church. From, from the writings of the New Testament where you see reference of catechism to the Didache in the first century to Cyril in the 300s who wrote the 23 lectures that were given to the catechumens in Jerusalem to Augustine of Hippo, the Roman African Christian theologian who wrote the Encridion for catechal instruction. In the Reformation, all the way up to the Reformation, this became very important. 
Martin Luther wrote his small catechism. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon today. In Geneva, Calvin published the instruction at Confession de Foy in 1537. You have the Geneva Catechism in the 1540s. In England, you had Nowell's Catechism. You have the book of uh, the prayer book of catechisms. You have the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms that played a role in the Protestant Reformation. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. The Heidelberg Catechism was formally approved and implemented in the historic Synod of Dort in 1619. The Synod of Dort, in fact, decreed that churches were to use their Sunday evening services for doing catechism. I say this because often when I talk about catechism, people will say, I thought that was like a Catholic thing. Go, oh, no. Uh, one, it's a biblical thing, but two, like Protestants were the champions of this stuff. If, if anything, we got them doing it because they were like, dang, they're out catechumening us. Uh, uh, the Synod of Dort had 52 sections for, for the Sundays of the year. And, and it said, this is what you're to do in your evening worship services. At last, in the Synod of Dort, in the 17th session, there's a threefold method that they offer for catechizing. The first is domestic, parents, you need to do this. The second is scholastic, schools need to do this. The third is ecclesiastic, pastors, elders, readers, visitors of the sick, you need to do this. And you need to make it the, the duty of the churches, they said, to do this. This is, this is a part of our mission. You go, man, that, that's so important. Look at, look at how the Heidelberg Catechism here from the Synod of Dort, how it begins. It's beautiful. It's not just memorizing for memorizing's sake, it's for worship's sake. Look at how it begins. The first question, what is the only comfort in life and death? That I, with my body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from, from all the power of the devil and preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Oh, that, that burns. But yea, and all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready and henceforth to live unto him. I mean, that's just beautiful. And it's on point. And you, again, you can, buy, you can buy it on Amazon. The Three Forms of Unity, which is a popular publication of it, has the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession of Faith. We have these documents from history that believers relied on for passing on the faith. That was so important. Uh, in terms of North America, the, the you know, pilgrims and Puritans, they were all about catechism. William Perkins' Catechism, the foundation of the Christian religion. They wrote catechisms, not just, this wasn't like for kids, they did this for adults. And they had versions for the kids too. John Cotton had one in the 1500s titled Milk for Babes Drawn Out of the Breasts of Both Testaments. And it was one that was written for babes, for kids. Puritan churches, schools, they considered catechism and instruction so important that it had to be done even at the university level. At Cambridge University, William Perkins served as a catechist of Christ College. John Preston in the 1500s at Emmanuel College. Like this was done from the, from the nursery all the way to college in the culture of the Protestant Reformation. And, and this was to be uh, brought so that people, as they're hearing the word preached on Sundays, they're also be given a manual to know how, it all, how this all fits together. Uh, one of my favorites in particular is the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith uh, from London. It was basically the, the Westminster Confession, but modified for Credo Baptists. And it's great. Uh, the historic preacher Spurgeon, one of my favorites. My last son, is, his middle name is in fact Spurgeon. I admire the man. Uh, he, he wrote, based on this, a catechism for his people. 
On October the 14th, 1855, Spurgeon preached a sermon in his pulpit in New Park Street Chapel. And when the sermon was published, it contained an announcement of a catechism. The text that morning was Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. The catechumen, passing it down to the next generation. And Spurgeon wrote, I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in all of our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing error of the times. And therefore, I have compiled this little manual from Westminster Assemblies and Baptist Catechisms for the use of my own church and congregation. Those who use it in their families or classes must labor to explain the sense. But the words should be carefully learned by heart, for they will be understood better as years pass. May the Lord bless my dear friends and the families evermore. This is the prayer of their loving pastor, C.H. Spurgeon. Now with new generations, new catechisms have come. I'm talking about this at the beginning of the year because at the beginning of the year we start our new catechism. Also at the beginning of the year we all need to be reminded uh, that this is important. It's historic. The very word catecheo is used in the Bible. It's a part of our tradition of passing on. You can buy copies of this on Amazon. We've ordered copies of this. Uh, it's a very simple. It has 52 questions. So there's 52 weeks in a year. And you do a question once a week. I open it up. Last week was question one. And you, you, you open this bad boy up and you got question one. What is our only hope in life and death? Hey, that sounded like Heidelberg. Yeah, but the answer is so much easier. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can memorize that. You go, oh, I didn't start last week. You can totally catch up. You just memorize that. And this week we're on question two. What, what is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection. Goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. You, you, work, you just meditate on that. Even if you can't commit it to memory, you just go, I'm going to meditate on this this week, and I'm going to grow as a disciple in Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to grow in a basic understanding of doctrine. We also have in the entry these little pamphlets. This will take you through the whole Bible in a year. It's free. Pick it up and just each day sit with your Bible and mark it off. Grow in the word. Make the sacrifice. We're disciples. We sacrifice for this. And as we're being changed and growing because we're learning, we pass it on to others. For the New City Catechism, there's a free app. You can get it on your phone. It's free. It's designed in three parts. It, it, the first section, part one, is on God creation, the fall of man and law. The second part is on Christ, redemption and grace. The third part is on the spirit, restoring and growing in grace. Every page, I held it up and I, I showed it to you there, has scripture references. So it, it takes you in and it, it draws you in. We are charged, we are commanded by God to make disciples. Look at these resources that we have at our disposal. I, I have little books up here. I've got a whole shelf of books that I have back here that that I brought just from my house to go, hey, look at this one. Hey, this one is good. Hey, you guys should pick up this one. You know me, I'm always trying to get people to read books. We are blessed with so many resources. We've been called and commanded by God to, to study his word, to know his word, to be catechumens. Now, in saying all of this, uh, you, you might say in particular for parents, you know, sometimes we can have parent, parental guilt. Maybe if your kids are older and you're going, I didn't do any of that with my kids. Or, you know, my kids are older, and I haven't done any of this. I haven't, I don't bring them to church, I don't teach them, I don't talk to them, I don't, you know, I haven't done any of this. And there's a sense where you can feel a guilt for that. 
or I, I, you know, and you go, man, I didn't do this, or, or I'm not a good disciple. I mean, I don't, I don't like read and sacrifice for stuff, you know. The offering plate comes around, I just throw a little tip in every once in a while. I don't give like I should. I don't sacrifice like I should. I, I'm not really living this life. I'm not carrying my cross. I'm not doing all that. And if you feel that, and that comes to you, this is where the gospel has to come to you. And you have to hear, it's okay. We're not doing any of this stuff to make Jesus love us more, to try and like get on his good side or anything. We're, we're all on his bad side. We all rebelled against him. We rebelled against the creator. We would have been in the crowds chanting if we were there in the first century when he died, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In our sin, we wouldn't do anything. But he rescued you and he saved you. And he knows you're not doing it. He knows where you failed. He's know where you have mistakes. And he's there to pick you up and say, look, I memorized everything. I did everything. I fulfilled everything. You're forgiven in me. I got you. Come to him this morning. Seek his renewal. Seek his forgiveness. And be a part of the final uh, point on the outline, his announcing church, where we're going out in the world and we're telling the world. And we're telling the world. As Jesus commanded, what I tell you in the darkness, Matthew 10, 27, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. What you're hearing today, it's important that you're internalizing it, that it's transforming you, and that you're taking it out into the world as a part of his announcing church, as a part of proclamation. One of the things that we do every Sunday as a part of proclamation is we partake in communion. And usually I have one up here, but I'll come down and grab one because it didn't happen. Uh, would you take a cup? we consider ourselves a part of the announcing church. This is an act that we do every Sunday where we're announcing him. Just as we sing songs, just as you get these long sermons talking about Jesus did this and Jesus did that and I call you every week to come to him. This is an act of calling to come. As you open this cellophane here, our COVID cups, keep everyone sanitized, you have a little symbol that reminds you of the body the eternal son who took on flesh. The eternal son who said, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something, and I want you to take this. I want you to proclaim this. Look at Luke 12 in front of you right here. Accordingly, what you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. He's in a little room with his disciples, and he busts out the bread from the Passover. He says, my body will be broken for you. The Passover was a celebration of the work that God did in Israel to liberate them from slavery. Christ uses that to say, I've come to liberate you from the slavery of sin and death. My body will be broken in your place. Ten out of ten people die. You deserve to die. You deserve to have your body broken. But I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give you this gift. So take this bread and announce that I am the one who gives grace and gives new life. In Colossians 1, 28... We read, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete in Christ. For this is the purpose of which I labor, laboring to his power which mightily works within us. The cup reminds us of the one who works within us. Blood is a reminder of what gives life to the body. It animates the body. You bleed out, you die. The blood of the new covenant in the Son is a spiritual blood that has come to animate our souls, to give us new life, to give us this message and this mission that we carry. So let's drink the cup and proclaim him this morning. You have it in front of you every Sunday, whether you notice it or not. 
This is our mission, joyfully worshiping God, upholding his word, loving people, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ together in discipleship for his glory. That's the mission in one pregnant statement. We don't ever want to let creep come in. And a part of the creep is educating the people in a catechumen so that everyone knows why we're here. I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up in the church, I didn't understand things. I'd ask questions. You know, why do we do it like this? Or why does the Bible say this? Or why does it, you know, and a lot of times it was just shut down. I wasn't catechized. I wasn't taught. I wasn't, I memorized some Bible verses or whatever. Uh, the few times I went to Iwana, I got, you know, more so doing it to get candy, if I'm being honest. But, you know, I, I wasn't raised. I had a lot of questions. And not being taught leads to frustration. You don't know what it means. You don't know why you're doing it. You check your brains at the door. We want to be a church where you can ask questions, where you can grow, where you're involved in people's lives. And so this message at the start of this year hopefully will bear fruit and carry us and go, okay, that's why we're doing what we're doing. And hopefully we'll all you know, pick this up one question a week. Dig in. Pick this up. Read your Bible this year. Dig in. Show up on Sundays. Dig in. Get involved in people's lives. And to God be the glory for, for the worship of him to the ends of the earth. Let's pray and sing some songs. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you, Lord, that you uh, have blessed us with so many resources. My goodness. Uh, we are uh, without excuse in terms of not knowing your word better, not knowing you better, not walking in more righteousness and holiness with you. Uh, so, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness this day, and we pray, Lord, for your transformation. Make us people who love this mission that you've given to us. Make us people who love the church. Uh, make us people who will sacrifice and, and give primacy to your, your people and your mission in this age. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and we await your renewal. We await to see how you'll change us this week. Give us new habits and new ways of seeing things as we grow in you. Receive these songs of worship, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.